Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Today's guest is Bridget Schulte. I sat down with her in Washington, D.C., pre-quarantine, and we had an amazing conversation. Bridget Schulte is the director of the Better Life Lab at New America, a nonpartisan think tank in Washington, D.C., She was an award-winning journalist for The Washington Post and The Washington Post Magazine, and she's also the New York Times bestselling author of one of my favorite books called Overwhelmed. So today, Bridget and I talked about exactly that. Why are women so overwhelmed? In short, Bridget explains that it's because our system is set up to make it really difficult just to get to the end of the day. The workplace changed dramatically since the Industrial Revolution, and as a result, women have been at a perpetual disadvantage. We talk about gender roles and double standards, including the gender pay gap, and how we should stop equating good performance with working overtime all the time. Bridget shares helpful strategies for building a better work-life balance and to ask ourselves the one thing we need to get done each day instead of trying to take on so much all at once. We talk about parenting, and we learn how to tackle it on equal ground. Oh, and when it comes to parenting, no one is a natural mother, so that's one less thing we can beat ourselves up over. We talk about how pain and loneliness can drive busyness, that at the end of the day, we're not always sure what our purpose is, so we turn to busyness to fill the unknown. But today, Bridget helps us understand how we can take pause, slow down, and prioritize to ease our own sense of overwhelm. To be a human and to be alive is painful. Because we were not really quite sure what we're doing here. We're not really quite sure. You know, I know a lot of people have faith, and I think that's wonderful. But we kind of don't know what comes next. And the only thing we know is that it's it's brief and that we will die and that there is a real pain to that. Mm-hmm. And so busyness does cover some of that up. I'll let Bridget take it from here. I feel like that your book broke one of my most annoying habits, which is to answer every question with, like, how are you? I'm busy. Mm, mm -hmm. And that (laughs) somehow being a point of pride. And now I'm so conscious about that. That's great because (laughs) that's how culture changes. Yeah. You know, sometimes it takes something massive and huge, and sometimes it's just that little ripple. Yeah. You know, that one person that doesn't do something and then becomes a model for somebody else, who becomes a model for somebody else. That's a conversation we have all the time at Goop, like what engenders change. And we do these, you know, in Goop Health Summits. And I was talking to a reporter about them, actually, and she was saying, she was like, how do you help people 
do the follow-up. And I was like, well, what we try to not do is have a summit where people are just frantically, furiously scribbling notes about all the things that they need to change in their lives because that's... <laughs> you just curl up in a ball yeah, on the floor and like, I can't do it. Yeah, no. you just, you, it's too much. It's, it's too much. It's the same culture. And all that we want to do is just like one, as you said, like that one little ripple, that one resonant thing or moment of that's me. Like, I feel seen or that's my relationship with my mother. Just like, that's all it kind of takes, Mm -hmm. I think, for things, for people to sort of lift up their heads. Mm -hmm. Because it is, it's like, we're operating in this very heads down, frantic, busy, none of us can do enough Mm -hmm. way. And we suck and fail or feel like we suck and fail at everything. And so I think just anything that makes us lift up our heads and look around and just, like, wonder, like, why are we doing this? Yeah, and and to begin to break those patterns and to recognize, this is what I'm hoping, that, you know, once you begin to take those little small steps, you take those breaths, you take those pauses, then you begin to see that it's not all your fault mm-hmm. and that we are all basically swimming in this water in a system that doesn't work for us. Yeah. And you know, it, it takes those little moments of awakening so that we can all begin to work on that larger system. Because right now, it's everybody feels like it's all on them. Oh, it's my fault that I'm not amazing at work. It's my fault that I'm not 110% productive every day, like all the articles will say. It's my fault that I'm not figuring out how to be this amazing mother and have a great home, and I can't figure out how to do it all. The way that things are set up, particularly in the United States, is not only are the standards way too high, but the support systems aren't there. It's just impossible. Yeah. And it's standards and it's somehow, you know, the first story that we did with you many, many, many years ago now, I think the title of it was sort of ending the mommy wars because somehow women have been pitted against each other, Mm -hmm. you know, in the myth of scarcity and in this myth of we should be able to do all things or that one thing has more value than the other. Mm -hmm. And then... We, what it, as you know better than I do from your work, it just, it's just a shame soup. Of, <laughs> That's such a great word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just we're stewing in it of guilt on both sides and feeling awkward mm-hmm. around each other for the choices that we're making and judged mm-hmm. and, and defensive. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, like, I don't – how did we get here? Like, how did this mm-hmm. happen to mm-hmm. us? Because it doesn't happen to men. I don't hear many men lamenting their either underperformance at work or underperformance at home. Well, and think about why not. Because their roles haven't changed. Yeah. Women and women's roles and what they can be, what we expect them to be, that's what's changed enormously. So when you think about how is it that we got here, well, we got here because for so long women didn't have a choice. Right. You you know, you know, were raised to basically raise the next generation. That was your role. The good woman was going to be a wife and mother, and that was your role for you know centuries, millennia. And, you know, a lot of this started, you know, there were always exceptions. You know, there's always exceptions to the rule. And then, you know, I think part of the mythology is we need to remember that for most of human history, people lived in agricultural kind of farm settles, you know. And there was always working mothers. There were always working women. You were always working as a family unit. You know, kids were working too. 
And so this whole this whole notion of you know work began to change really with the industrial revolution. That work became someplace you went out to do, out to the factory, out to the office. Mm-hmm. And so then that's when we kind of this whole notion of people being in charge of separate spheres. And if you were a man, your sphere was to go out in the public sphere to work. And if you were a woman, your p- private sphere was sort of your home was re- your kind of where you had your power, and you were in charge of everything at home. So, you know, when people are nostalgic for the 1950s, that's a lot of what they're nostalgic for, this this notion that you had a breadwinner who took earned enough money that would come home, that mom could take care of everything and make this nice home and make cookies for kids when they got home from school, kind of this leave-it-to-beaver, you know, ideal family. And what's so important, you know, kind of about creating that pushing back against those mythologies is that wasn't the case for all American families right. anyway. Yeah. You know, basically white people, middle class people, folks who are in power even now, that's what they remember. So that's what they legislate for. That's what they value. But for people of color, particularly African-American women have worked f- forever, you know, as domestics, as maids, mm-hmm. you know, so that was never the African-American experience. So I think we need to broaden our lens a little bit, first of all. You know, but secondly, it was really with the women's movement in the 60s and 70s that began to kind of open up opportunities for women. That was sort of one path toward change. But the other one that it's just, it's really overlooked and people forget this, is that you begin to look at what happened to wages. So back in the 50s, you know, there was that, it was called sort of the, the you know, the family wage. One person could earn enough money to support a family. That began to change in the 1970s. Yeah. And really ever since then, you cannot survive on one income. And so what ended up happening is that women entered the workforce just to keep the same standard of living. And Heather Boucher has done some fascinating work on what would have happened if women didn't go into the workplace, you know, sort of the conservative you know, dream that, you know, women stayed home. Well, what would have happened is a significant number of American families would have fallen into poverty. So women enabled families to stay in the middle class. So that changed enormously in the 70s. So we had choice, but we also kind of didn't have choice. We had to begin working so that women changed and uh, women's lives changed. But what didn't change were men. You know, there was sort of this thought, well, you know, men will help at home. Well, you know, I went to a time use conference when I was working on my book that looked at what they called the gender division of time. And men are spending all their time at, at, at work and not very much time on caregiving and housework. Women are doing twice as much. I went to that same conference last summer and damn, if the numbers aren't, they're the same. They haven't moved in a decade. So women, you know, men are doing a little bit more than, say, their fathers, but women are still spending twice as much time doing housework and childcare. So that really hasn't changed. Men haven't changed. And workplaces really haven't appreciably changed. There still is this notion that if you're going to be the best worker and, you know, you have all this language when you think about performance evaluations. Did you go above and beyond? Did you Mm -hmm. put in 110 percent? You know, I remember when I was working at The Washington Post getting an email, sort of a blast email from one of the editors saying, so-and-so is such a great reporter. She worked. This is the third, you know, month in a row that she's worked all weekend long and she's here late every night. Isn't she amazing? Yeah. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, no, that's she's she's basically gifting her life back to you yeah. yeah, and not getting any compensation for it. So workplaces haven't changed appreciably. Uh, you know, if there's flexible work or maybe a maternity leave policy, those are sort of seen as 
secondary or mommy tracking or accommodating a lesser worker. If you're really going to make it, you know, the ideal worker is somebody who works all the time, overworks, you know, is always available. And if you are also responsible for all of the care at home because you don't have uh, support, that's impossible for you to do. Yeah. It's, it's an impossible thing. You can't compete on a, an environment like that. So workplaces haven't changed enough either on the professional end nor on sort of the hourly end or the low-wage end. Women earn, I mean, so much of the pay gap, There, you know, there's two ways to think about it. And one is if you are in the very same profession at the same level of education and in the same, you know, years of experience, there is a pay gap there that economists cannot figure out. There's still a portion of it that's got to be discrimination and gender. But a huge part of the pay gap is because so many women are in caring professions like teaching and education and healthcare. And guess what? As a society, we have decided that those jobs aren't valuable enough to pay very well. So a lot of women don't get you know, they just don't get good pay because we've decided that what they do isn't important. And yet, when a man comes into those jobs, this is what is an infuriating thing about so much of the research. A man with less education, less experience, say, in nursing, will earn more money than a woman. So there is, there's all sorts of discrimination and gendered ways of thinking that really still are so powerful in the workplace. So the workplace hasn't changed. And the last thing is public policy hasn't changed. You know, you look at Department of Labor, labor standards. They were all set in the 1930s. Our social security system, our tax system, they're all set up to support breadwinner, homemaker families of the 1930s, and they haven't changed. We have one national family supportive policy, and that is the Unpaid Family Medical Leave Act that took 10 years to pass, was vetoed twice by George H.W. Bush, was the first thing that Bill Clinton signed. And so many people wanted to, you know, like we're trying to pull him back, like, no, don't make it unpaid. Because you had all these conservatives saying, oh, this is just a, this is a yuppie bill. This is just, you know, a waste of time. Well, when you make it unpaid, guess who can take unpaid leave? People who have resources. Guess who can't take unpaid leave. All the people who are doing the childcare, maybe your teacher, you know, certainly not somebody working at McDonald's. So now you've really got this grotesque inequality where, you know, high wage professional people are, you know, five, seven, ten times more likely to have, you know, be able to take leave than than somebody who, who makes a lower wage. And the data and research is so clear about how important it is to have, you know, bonding time, recovery time. So we, we don't even have that. One in four U.S. mothers goes back to work within two weeks. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And we're the only, I mean, it's us and like Samoa, the Marshall Islands. You know, it depends. Uh, you know, for a while it was us and like Papua New Guinea and yeah. Lesotho. And then Lesotho changed this policy and it was hysterical. It was like, get us off that terrible list with the United States. <laughs> So it's it's ridiculous. And it's, you know, somebody from said a panel discussion once and somebody asked this guy, you know, and he just goes, I can only think that it's cruelty. It I can't cruelty. think of any other reason why we're like this. So I think it's part of a larger system where we don't value women. Mm-hmm. It's part of a larger system where we're like, well, you really should be home. But if you're going to work, well, then you better figure out how to make it work. So, so that's why 
you know, to go back to your original question, why are so many women feeling so overwhelmed and so stressed and up late at night, you know, with anxiety and, you know, feeling like they're running a million miles an hour and getting nowhere? It's because the system is set up. I don't want to say to make you fail, but to make it really difficult, really difficult for you to just get to the end of the day. Oh, and and it's, you know, the opposite of failing is to never feel like you're winning, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where there's, there's a cost always to everything. And maybe that's part of being human, but it feels like it just feels deeply unfair. I mean, it just feels like women are saddled with this anxiety and and not so much men. And going to paid family leave, I mean, I, I'm i sure I was just really naive and, and not paying attention. I feel like we've we, there has been progress in terms of the work that you guys are doing and other just conversations about this. And I'm glad it's an issue that you know, some of the candidates are talking about. But I had no idea until I had, until I went to HR, this is at a previous company, I was pregnant with my first child and went through, sort of, she walked me through my lack of benefits. I was floored. I had no idea that I was expected. I think that they were going to give me a few weeks of paid and then I was going to go on disability. I was like, what? Like, yeah. I'll have to come back to work. Yeah. I can't. I didn't save for this. I'm not prepared for this. Yeah. And I had a good job. So that was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. But then I think what happens, and, and and obviously many companies are stepping up, but primarily, again, for people who are more affluent mm-hmm. in this country, certainly not, you know, Walmart and McDonald's are stepping up to cover paid leave. Tech is a leader in this, of course. But only on the front lines, right? Not in the people who are delivering the Amazon packages, but only in the, you know, corporate headquarters. But it feels like it's one of those issues that also I think we all have this tendency. It's like hazing culture, right? Like Mm. this happened to me. No one helped me. It sucked for me. Why should I make it better for you? Mm. And I think that that's, Again, like another part of this story that women, like we have to get over, but we have to figure out how to let some of that go yeah, in order to help younger women. It just all of those things is just, you know, I, I'm, I'm just sort of sitting here and trying not to curl into the fetal position. I cannot tell you how many times as a reporter over the years I would get a call from someone in tears, seven months pregnant, saying, I just found out we don't have maternity leave. How can we not have – my company doesn't have it. I didn't know. I didn't know the United States doesn't have it. And so I would say, you know, when I think back, so when I thought, you know, the 10 years, so the time diary research didn't change and women are still doing all the care work and, or, or twice as much care work and, and, and housework. But some of the things that I am heartened by is that we're having more conversations. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hoping is that – you know, before, and I don't, you know, I, we stand on the shoulders of really amazing women, you know, the who really, you know, opened the doors for women, the early feminist leaders, total, you know, great homage to them. And yet, at the same time, there was so much pressure for women to enter, you know, enter the work world and so much pressure to, like, you can do anything a man can do, that I think that we forgot in those early days to remember, you know, to, to again, think a little bit, think a, bit a, a little bit more broadly. Think about what does that mean? 
you know, to be able to recover and have a child? What does it really look like if you're going to really effectively combine work and life? And how would you bring men into that so that they can come into the private sphere and really make that, really make it more equal at home so that you can have more equality at work? And so one of the things I think, because I, you know, my kids are, you know, my son is a senior in college now, and my daughter's a freshman in college, so my kids are older now. But I remember those early days. It's almost like you, you tried to work as if you didn't have kids. You tried to compete like a man. You tried to like, yeah, I, I can go cover that hurricane. And, and then you'd run home. It's like, oh, my God, how am I going to figure out childcare? How am I going to do this? But you put on this brave front, you know, yeah, almost as if you didn't have, uh, you know, caregiving. And so I do see that's beginning to change, that, that we're beginning to have much more honest conversations. Because when you're trying to put on that brave front, well, see, I'm just like a man, then you know, then you, it's sort of okay. HR doesn't need to be clear about what your policies are, or there mm-hmm. isn't that same sort of push to try to have family supportive policies. Or, And I think that's what's changed that I'm most heartened about. You know, some of the policies that the companies are putting forward, whether it's with paid leave or even, you know, child care, it's because people are asking for it. Yeah. It's because they're saying this isn't right. And, you know, and that's exciting, you know, to, to recognize that people, when they get together, you know, when you can kind of stop being busy and blaming yourself and recognize, wow, the system isn't working, you can talk to other people, recognize that it, you know, it isn't sort of an epidemic of personal failures, as, yeah. you know, as people talk about, but it's really a failure of the system. And how can we get together to make the system work? You know, there's story after story of, you know, people at the New York Times or, you know, women at Amazon, you know, people in companies really really making a difference. Yeah. And you know, and what I'd love to see is that, you know, so that's starting, you know, you see really exciting movements too around like the fight for 15 and so I think that there are some hopeful signs even in the fact that we're beginning to recognize that's like wow, I didn't have leave either and oh, you know, that's terrible and how can we change that? Yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned like a it's not working and two most of the Politi- the, the activists within companies and I'd say culturally are women, you know, and I think that it's, again, another thing that we have to do. But it is, it's time for the rise of sort of the divine feminine and all those things that you mentioned are discounted, healthcare, education, caretaking. I think we're starting to understand what the world looks like absent investments in those in this country and how dire it is how our kids are failing, how our morbidity, like we're dying, our, our, you know, lifespan is dwindling despite spending so much money on healthcare that our kids can't compete globally. And I think we're all, you know, it's becoming increasingly obvious. And I think the women have the answers. Like we, this is all intuitive to us. Like we understand all of this deeply. And there has to be there has to be a better and way, and I think part of it too is just thinking about how you know I'm really lucky in that my husband is a great caretaker. It's probably mm-hmm. still not equitable. I mean, like there's a lot of learned helplessness on both of our <laughs> sides um, in terms of the way that we divide oh, things yeah. up. Oh, but he, oh, I so get that. Yeah. yeah, and there are times, and I'm like, you shouldn't be rewarded for going to the grocery store because I go four times as much as you. But he, you know, part of it was that I don't, I don't think I 
ta- I don't think I'm no I'm like not a natural mother if that mm. makes sense yeah and so I think part of what's happening or I hope would happen too is that we can all start to understand sort of how we can be copacetic partners collectively in terms of doing what we're good at and oh, like figuring yeah. out our purpose collectively yeah. and then finding the ways that it all fits together instead of assuming that we should all be equally good at everything. Well, and you made a really, really important point. You said, I'm not perhaps a natural mother. Well, guess what? Nobody is. And that's another mythology that's out there. And that was part of what was just talk about, like, rock my world when I was reporting on the book. You know, I always assumed, well, I should do this. And that's where so much of my guilt came from. Oh, my God, I should have this maternal instinct. I should do all this. My kid is sick. I should be the one there. I should be the one going to the parent-teacher conferences. It's sort of like my husband was sort of like, a, you know, a bonus, but he didn't have to be. I had to be there. And it just yeah. fueled the stew of guilt that I just, uh, you know, kind of marinated in for years. And it was so fascinating to really look at the science that there is no such thing as the maternal instinct. Mm-hmm. There isn't. That men are just as wired physiologically and, you know, with M- fMRIs and sort of the brain science, they're just as wired in the same pathways for nurture. What's different you know, and, and granted, okay, there are hormones. I mean, I don't want to discount that. You know, your body does change. You're, there yeah. are hormonal changes when you when you have a child. But there are hormonal changes for men, too. Their bodies also produce prolactin, which is the same hormone that produces breast milk. Their bodies drop in testosterone levels. There are physiological changes when you become a father. And we didn't know that. This is what I find so fascinating, that that science was discovered by accident because nobody thought that men had that. They're just like, well, you know, men aren't, aren't care, caregivers. They're just going to go out with their clubs and spears and go hunt. And that's what men do. And that's actually not true. And if you look at really early human history, like the Pleistocene era, we were what's called cooperative breeders. We all helped each other out because that's the only way we could survive. And so you not only had your partner, but you had alloparents. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, others in the group, you're, you know, not just your family members, but friends, you'd all look after each other. And I think that's a lot of what we've lost in this modern era. But, you know, but to go back to that sense of, of what's quote unquote natural, I think that's a really important thing for couples or, you know, partners to realize that so much of, of what we think we should do is really based on mythology, it's not based on science why women tend to be better, if you will, with infants is because they've got the time. You'd have the time to develop confidence and competence. You know, you figure out what this cry means. No, they're hungry. No, they're they're upset. No, whereas men Mm -hmm. are, they just haven't been given the opportunity to be around. And so if you give them that time, things change. No, it's true. I mean, when I, I remember driving to the hospital to have my first and I I was induced and my husband was saying, he was like, I'm really, I don't think I'm going to feel anything. And I was like, well, don't worry. I don't, I might take a minute. I don't know what I'm going to feel either. And it's funny that night I was so tired. I fell asleep and Rob was up all night plunging, taking the amniotic fluid out of Max's lungs, crying. He made like 18 videos and learned how to swaddle. You know, he was he's an architect by training, so he was like fascinated with YouTube videos. And we emerged <laughs> from the hospital, and he was the competent parent. Wow. I was just – I was torn. I was just a mess. Yeah. And he – and that's my best advice to people is just like just don't do anything. Yeah. Like let 
him do it and let or let your partner do it with the nurse's help. And so when we got home, we were still sort of bumbling and confused about how to do things. But he was he was actually many steps ahead of me. Mm. And that really paid off because and the same, you know, a friend of mine who's a TV screenwriter had to go back to work like a week after she had a baby <sighs> and or she had to leave. She had to go beyond set for a week. And so wow. she was like, it was the best thing that ever happened, though, because mm. her husband, Jeff, was like, I got to figure this out. Yeah. And like they, they survived. And they do. Yes. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I'll, you know, I think that's so important, just that having time and exposure on your own yeah. is so important. And so that's what I'll tell, you know, and I didn't do it, and I wish I did. I was the, the poster child for what they call maternal gatekeeping, you know, because I thought that, oh, I know how to do it or I should. And so some of that was fueled by guilt. And then my husband, he did have a paternity leave at his at his uh, newspaper at the time. But this is the other thing. It's one thing to have a policy. It's another to actually feel like you can use it. Yeah. And he just said no men u- used it. It was sort of a PR thing. And he just said and it was a toxic environment. He was really worried it would, it would hurt him in the long run. So he didn't take paternity leave. So I'm already resentful and angry. I'm getting better at, like, what the babies need. You know, he would come home, and I just want to take a shower and hand him the baby. Baby's unfamiliar. He's sort of feeling, you know, unfamiliar. The baby starts to cry. I stomp down the stairs. I'm like, give me that baby, you idiot. You don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Not realizing that I was making that worse, you know, and that what I really needed to do was just take a shower and let the baby cry, let him feel uncomfortable until he didn't anymore because it wasn't always going to be that way. And they need to get, you know, the best thing that you can do is if you've got leave, which not, you know, only 17% of Americans have paid leave. But if you do take the leave, try to take some of it together, but try to take some of it on your own. And if you don't have leave or you have unpaid leave or you can't afford to take it or you're worried, you know, it would hurt your career, set up something like, you know, Daddy Saturday, you know, Saturday morning or, you know, Daddy Sunday afternoon, and then just let them alone, you know, and mm-hmm. you go do a yoga class, go for a walk, take a nap, take a bath. Don't be there, you yeah. know, because if you're going to be there, you're going to hover and you're like, no, he doesn't like that or she doesn't like that. You're doing it you're wrong. You're doing it wrong. Leave and let them figure out how to do it and then we'll do it differently, but it's not wrong. Yeah. So where are we? I mean, I know we're nowhere probably except maybe on state level. I know we've been making progress on states and yeah. that's one of my personal places to focus is just state, 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 state yeah. while we figure out what's happening um, federally or not. You know, clearly we need paid family leave. We need better child care supported by the government. I mean, is it France where daycare, you know, child care, people are educated like at the equivalent of the Sorbonne? Yep. And it's not perceived as – I mean, it's crazy that – it's like a minimum wage job in this country. Or not even. At yeah. the average wage, a child care worker is 10 bucks an hour. So it's about what you get if you're a parking lot attendant. Half of all the child care workers in the United States are so poor that they qualify for public benefits like Medicaid or SNAP. And the, the crazy thing, so for the longest time, I couldn't understand, like, child care. Like, this is going to sound weird. I'm not... College is incredibly expensive. We've been saving for years, but there's a part of me that isn't too worried because somehow we pay for childcare, mm-hmm. which was expensive and crazy. 
so how is it that parents are like struggling and you know I don't care where you are in the socioeconomic spectrum everybody's struggling with childcare costs we did this big report looking at the cost quality and availability of childcare in all 50 states not one state does it well and we profiled stories of people and this one couple that I spent time with in Georgia you know, you know, both of them worked, both of them professional, but they were basically paying a second mortgage just for childcare. And then to get their child in the same place that their older son was, she was paying tuition before she'd even had the baby, which just wow. was insane. So everybody's struggling. So how is it that caregivers earn poverty wages, parents are strapped, and then the providers themselves are operating, they're often on shoestring budgets, mom and pop, nobody's making money. How is it? How is that possible? And it's possible because the market is broken. It's not a market that works. It's like we need to start thinking about childcare the way we think about education. You know, nobody's going into education thinking that schools are going to be profitable. They're not. It's a public good. It's an investment in the future. And that's what we need to start thinking about with with early care and learning and childcare. The reason that it's so expensive is because it takes a lot of people to do it well. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have one one adult take care of five infants or maybe six, you know, or maybe, you know, six or seven kids, two to three-year-olds. You can have one teacher take care of up to 35 and six-year-olds once you get into, into elementary school. So it just takes a lot more people to do it well. But what we're finding from the research is how critical it is that when you've got a caregiver who's stressed, doesn't know how to pay their bills, might quit to go work at McDonald's because they're going to make more money, and there's so much more instability then and turnover, there's high turnover, that actually impacts the quality of the child care that, that the child receives, yeah. which then impacts your behavior, your cognitive outcomes in the future. We need to completely rethink the way we look at childcare and think about it as an investment in the future. And I think the other thing that's important to think about is, you know, and this is sort of more of the conservative arguments like, well, I don't want my child to go to childcare. That's that's fine. It doesn't have to be a universal factory model that everybody has to go to, but it should be something that's available if you if you need it or want it. Yeah. You know, and it's really something that that we need to figure out how to do together. How can we invest in this together? I mean, yeah. if we can spend trillions in a war in Afghanistan, you know, that's after 18 year, years is at a horrendous stalemate, can't we figure out how to do childcare at home? Yeah. No, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I also, you know, think about the impact it has on – I've never interviewed him, but I love his book. It's called Hold On To Your Child, I believe. It's mm. Gordon Newfield. He's, a, he's in Canada. But he talks about – to the importance of kids staying adult attached. Mm. And a lot of what we see happening is that kids have become increasingly peer attached because mm. they don't have adults to attach to. Mm. And we don't have these communities or these communities of caregivers that are invested in our kids and love our kids and who they can sort of want to inherently please or you know be in relationship with. Mm. And so, I you know, his point, too, is, like, kids haven't gotten crueler. The kids have always been kind of cruel at times with bullying and whatnot. But what we're seeing is, like, you know, suicide, just so much depression, loneliness, mm. suicide among young people because they're peer attached. It's, like, the only mm. the only relationships that they have are with their, you know, imperious 
you know, tween friends. Oh, wow. Who are still trying to figure out who, who they are. Who are still trying too. to figure out who they are and are, of course, not appropriate yeah. for that sort of, like, for, for people to put their whole self-worth into. And so it's oh. just, like, becomes a bigger, like, when you think about it from the allopathic community approach, like, we don't live close to our families. We don't have that. And so we need our caregivers to function as family. We need to support them as family. And, you know, the other thing that so much of what that strikes me is really how we think about time. Yeah. And you know what families need is time. So, yes, we need those warm, loving relationships with caregivers. But we need time not only with our families but to get to know our neighbors, to have mm-hmm. that sense of time with our community. And so many of us are just fried and in these kind of like overworked professional cultures or it, we're in these like crazy, unpredictable, low-wage work situations where you've got to then figure out how to cobble together a couple different jobs just to make ends meet. You know, our work system isn't working for anybody. And yeah. and that's robbing us of our time then, you know, not only for ourselves, but to build those relationships that we need with our kids, with our neighborhoods, with our communities. You know, it goes back to that first point that you made about being busy. You know, it's why people don't – they feel like they don't have time to understand what's going on civically. It's why they feel like they don't have time to vote or that it doesn't matter. We need that time to reconnect with each mm-hmm. other, you know, that that's – we need to, you know, not only rebuild our families but kind of rebuild our neighborhoods and our civic community. Yeah. And it, and it you know, as we started, the, the culture of busyness became – has become – a point of pride where, you know, like somehow having time is, means you're lazy or apathetic or not engaged or not so maximizing sad. every single yeah. fucking minute. And <laughs> I hate those articles. I'm sorry. I, do, yeah. I, I just I, I see them and I toss them anymore. They're a dime a dozen. Yeah. Ten ways to do more of this. Twelve ways to do more of that. It's like I want to take a nap, you know. Yeah, exactly. And you should. A nappuccino. But, yeah, I think we're – hopefully starting to culturally move past that and instead of, you know, now I'm sort of ashamed when, like, that's the first thing that I'm like, oh, I'm so busy. It's just, it's like, not embarrassing, but it feels boastful about something that's dumb and doesn't matter, you know? Well, actually, you know what, when I I say I'm busy, because sometimes I am. Yeah. You know what it feels like? It feels like I don't have my priorities right. Yeah. It feels like I haven't figured out how— to shrink work into its proper role because I, I do. I have, I have developed bad habits over the yeah. years and I was working, I'm sad to say, like uh, like a couple weekends ago and my husband it was the one that he came to and he goes, uh, didn't you write a book about how people needed to play? It's like, damn it, All right. Yeah. So then we went for a hike and went to a couple breweries and that was a that was <laughs> that's a good day. That was a very fun thing to do. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's t- I think too when there's that instinct of like I'm busy too for me has been sort of like what's underneath that, like what's the emotion that's underneath it? And for me, it's often you know I have this conversation with my husband where I'm like I'm lonely, mm. you know, like that's mm. what it it drives for me because I don't have a lot of time for my friends or you know I'm lonely or I'm scared because I think Mm -hmm. so many of us, you know, drive our busy, you know, for me, it's like so many people, it's attached to, like my output is attached to my worth and and always. Yeah. Right? Or, you know, just trying to really understand what that is. Mm Because for 
for me too, like work and busyness is it's a numbing. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, there is that sense that, you know, if you want to just go, you know, really deep, to be a human and to be alive is painful. Yeah. Because we were not really quite sure what we're doing here. We're not really quite sure. You know, I know a lot of people have faith, and I think that's wonderful. But we kind of don't know what comes next. And the only thing we know is that it's it's brief and that we will die and that there is a real pain to that. Mm-hmm. And so busyness does cover some of that up. It makes it possible to not have to think about it because you've got so many other things going on. I do think that that's part of what has always driven sort of busyness or avoidance, you know, kind of throughout human history. I think what's different now, you know, it's sort of it's faster, it's more tech inflected, it's 24-7. And it's, you know, it's become sort of a more, you know, kind of this boastful badge of honor kind of thing. So much so that I don't think that, you know, I don't think that we even take a moment to stop to think about why we're drawn to it or why we feel guilty if we're not busy. You know, and one of the things when I when I talk to people like in, in business culture, because it's really perpetuated there too, you know, if you see somebody rushing around all the time and slamming doors and going to the meetings, you must think, oh, wow, they're so important. Mm-hmm. And we've attached importance and status with busyness. And yet there's really, really interesting research that's coming out of behavioral science that's showing that when we're busy, it's it's like scarcity. It's like time scarcity. And what actually ends up happening is we get this weird tunnel vision and everything kind of narrows. And so you're really only able to think or focus on the things, you know, a couple low value tasks right in front of you. So in one sense, that prevents you from thinking about the big picture and the meaning of life and the fact that we're only here for a limited time. But on the other end, what ends up happening, they've actually studied this, you lose 13 IQ points. Mm -hmm. You literally become stupid by being busy. And so then you want to feel productive. So what do you do? The low-value task right in front of you is like, wow, I've got all these emails in my inbox. I better, like, deal with them. And so you get to the end of the day. uh, We're working on this really cool project trying to understand what drives work-life conflict. And, you know, can you use behavioral science to try to create nudges or interventions to – you know, to change that and then change health and change equity. And so much of what, you know, when we talk to people, they'll say, oh, I was so busy all through the day. And, you know, it's five or six o'clock and it's time to go. And I realize I haven't started that one really big thing that I needed to do. And so then they stay late or they'll bring work home and they'll work at home or it'll spill over into the weekends. So busyness is actually perpetuating work-life conflict. It's actually making things worse. It's it's sucking time away from our families because we're actually not getting our most important work done at work. And so then work just kind of like bleh, becomes this blob that takes over your life. So And busyness is a big part of why that's happening. So you know, I think it's time for all of us to kind of wake up and smell the roses and take a nap, you know, stop. Yeah. And that's, you know, I know you, there's a lot of t- good tactical advice in your book, but it is, it's like, it's just, it is stop, right? It's like flipping your priority list to the just the one thing, mm-hmm. the one most important thing. What are the other things that you just... Besides probably voting. <laughs> yes, you need to vote. <laughs> you know, I still do that. My running partner and I, we've, we've done this for years now. Really, it kind of started with reporting on my book. We'll finish our run. We'll turn to each other and say, what's your one thing? 
Mm. Okay, this is my one thing. And then the next day, it'll be like, how'd you do your one thing? I, you know, I, I muffed it. So <laughs> now it's my one thing today. So you don't always get it right, but you set that intention. It really forces you early in the day or early in the week to think about, you know, what is the purpose of my job? What is the most important thing that I can do? And if I get to the end of the day, you know, and I run a nonprofit program, I'm a writer. If I get to the end of the day and all I've done is answer a bunch of emails, that's that's really not my job. My job is to try to change the world, to make a more yeah. gender equal world. So what have I done to move that forward? And if I can get clear early in the week, that day, usually what I try to do now is like, what are my top three things for the week that I really, really want to get done? And how can I, and a lot of times then we'll think about what our priorities are, and then we just start our day. And so we don't do the next thing, which is then to look at our time and say, when am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, and block that time just as you would a meeting. Yeah. Put it on your calendar. And then if you don't actually do it at that particular time, that time moves. Maybe Wednesday moves to Thursday, but it stays on your calendar because you need to create the space to actually do the work. And as so many of us, we just think it's just going to get done. But putting it on the list, identifying it as a, as a, as a priority is just the first step. And I think the other thing to recognize, so, you know, intentional scheduling, making it really transparent, sharing it with your team, letting them know when you can be scheduled for meetings and when you can't, and honoring that concentrated work time, that you need that and that it, that it, that that's, you know, that's sacred time, kind of giving yourself that out to do your most important work, create that space. But then I think one of my most favorite things that I've learned from doing this behavioral science work is this wonderful notion that human beings are terrible at estimating how long things are really going to take. We always overpromise, underestimate, and so we're that's part of what drives a lot of this, you know, work-life conflict. So create slack in your calendar, you know, create, you know, I try to do it on Friday afternoons, you know, from two to four. This is the period where I'm going to do all the stuff that I thought I would do by Tuesday and I still haven't done, but I feel like I need to do so I can, I can kind of unplug for the weekend. So kind of recognize that that's a human behavior. It's, it's not a fault, you know, kind of give, give yourself permission to create space to, (laughs) To deal with the planning fallacy, so so that's those are some of the things. There are things that are that you can do, you know, in your own life to make l- things seem not quite so crazy. And I think once you begin to have more room to breathe, you know, begin to really question. Like, wait a minute, why am I baking these cupcakes? Wait a minute, why do I feel like I'm the one that has to do this? Wait a minute, what about my husband? Or, you know, yeah. begin to begin to question your you know, kind of the, the, the assumptions that you're making in life. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, you know, my husband and I, it's still a work in progress to try to share the load at home. And, you know, I had one chapter in my book I called my rage chapter about when I recognized how unfair it was. You know, so just going on right now at home, he left the water running on Saturday for hours and went out and got a, got a haircut and forgot it was running and came back and the ceiling was raining. Oh, my God. And I, I was out of town and I came back and I'm like, I love you. This is on you. I'm not fixing it for you. Here's our homeowner's insurance policy number. Have at it. And so he's had to call. He's set up the serve pro, you know, come to dry. And then he's leaving. He's going to be out of town for two weeks. And he's like, yeah, well, you'll have to take over the repairs. And I'm like, I can live with a hole in my ceiling for two weeks. You can do it when you come back. So we need to, you know, recognize Mm -hmm. 
that you want to be partners, but, you know, you can share things. Yeah. And those boundaries, I think, are important, even if it's it's important for us, of course, in our own lives. But I think, too, for any anyone who's listening, who's in a position of of power, you have to model it. You know, you have to. If it's not for you, then it's for the younger women, mm-hmm. right? And that's important, too. It's, yeah. We're going to fix this thing. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Bridget Schulte. To learn more about Bridget and the work she's doing with the Better Life Lab, head to BridgetSchulte.com. That's B-R-I-G-I-D-S-C-H-U-L-T-E. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.